Hello and welcome to the Standing for Truth Ministries podcast. I'm your host, Donnie Bedinsky, and together we will venture on a journey to explore the truth of biblical creation. Our ministry is also available on YouTube, so please search Standing for Truth and get access to the video versions of our programs. I'm Donnie Bedinsky, and as usual, stay awesome and trust in the truth of God's Word. Okay, awesome. Thanks so much. Looks like we're live, everybody. We've got a good one for you tonight. Both Dr. Ken Hoven and Dr. Ron Garrett have been kind and gracious enough to give us their time for this most important debate. Both these debaters are no strangers to this topic of creation versus evolution. They are both highly knowledgeable individuals, which guarantees this to be one to remember. I have also got brother John Maddox here as co-moderator. John, thanks for joining us. Um, and Always fun to be here, man. Should be a good time. Awesome. I appreciate it. Uh, we got a big audience. So, uh, John, you're a big help tonight. So because we have such a large audience and chat tonight, unfortunately, we may not be able to get all the questions. Therefore, tag John Maddox uh, with your questions. We'll save them. Super chats, of course, will be read first. And then we will do as many questions as, as we can. We've got an easygoing, respectful, formal debate tonight, structured, uh, roughly 10-minute openings. We're flexible, though. Ron's going to take as much time as he needs. We're going to give uh, Dr. Hoven the same amount of time, followed by uh, roughly six-minute rebuttals, and then an equally timed 20-minute discussion period. No interruptions from either debater. Both debaters will get all the time they need, of course, to make their points and all the time they need to respond to the various points. Uh, Lastly, three-minute closings and, and a, a short question and answer. So enough for me. Let us hand it over to Dr. Hoven and Dr. Garrett, the two men you all came out here to see. Uh, before the opening statements, let's give both debaters a brief introduction as to who they are and what they may be doing over at their channels and ministries. So we can start with you, uh, Dr. Hoven. Go ahead. Thanks for being with us tonight. Well, thanks for having me on. My name is Kent Hoven. I'm in Lenox, Alabama, population 35. Uh, straight north of Pensacola, 70 miles. We're building a Christian camp. I taught high school science and math 15 years. I've been ordained Baptist preacher 46 years, and I take the position the Bible is true and evolution is silly. Didn't happen. Awesome. Thanks so much, uh, Dr. Hoven. Over to you, Dr. Garrett. So uh, my name is Ron Garrett. Um, I don't usually like to dwell on my credentials because I don't think arguments should... I, do, I think arguments should stand on their own merits and not on the authority of the person presenting them. But the main argument that I intend to make tonight turns to some extent on my credentials, as you will see. So I have to toot my horn a little bit more than I otherwise would. So nowadays, I am a semi-retired software engineer. But I used to be a scientist, which is to say I used to make my living doing original research and publishing peer-reviewed papers. I spent a total of 15 years doing AI and robotics research at the NASA Jet Propulsion Lab. I worked on the research program that led up to the first Mars rover mission and a couple of other cool projects. So I was at one time a genuine card-carrying member of the scientific establishment. I got to see firsthand how the scientific sausage actually gets made, and I even made a little bit of it myself. But I'm not a biologist, I'm not a geologist, I'm not a physicist, and I'm not an astronomer, I'm a computer scientist. I have a PhD in computer science from Virginia Tech, and as I mentioned, my field of expertise was AI and robotics. But I did get to hang out with actual card-carrying biologists and geologists and physicists and astronomers and even a few actual rocket scientists. 
And nowadays, I also study quantum mechanics as a hobby along with young Earth creationism. And I don't have a channel and I don't have a ministry. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, we're happy to have you both. Great introductions, gentlemen. Um, tonight we're debating the topic of is there reasonable evidence for evolution? We'll hand it over to you, Ron. Take as much time as you need. And we'll do the same with uh, with Kent. So whenever you're ready, Ron. Okay. Hi, Kent. <laughs> so uh, to prepare for this debate, I spent some time watching your videos. I have to say yes. I was pretty impressed by your ability to weave a plausible sounding story. You are a lot more charismatic and well-spoken than I am, so I feel a little bit like David going up against Goliath here. Uh, happily for me, truth is not decided on charisma or well-spokenness, so maybe I still have a fighting chance. Your videos don't leave a lot of room for doubt or even nuance about where you stand. You've called evolution, and I quote, the dumbest and most dangerous religion in the history of the world and public enemy number one. You've said, and again, I quote, that everything that has ever been used as evidence for the theory of evolution has been proven wrong. Now, at this point, I could launch into the usual litany of scientific evidence, but you've done a lot of debates with a lot of people who know evolutionary science a lot better than I do. So anyone who wants to see that kind of discussion can just go on YouTube and look up your greatest hits. So I thought I'd try something different. I'm going to use a form of argument called reductio, which kind of sounds like a spell from Harry Potter, reductio. <laughs> um, in this kind of argument, you start by assuming the opposite of what you want to prove and see where it leads. So let's try it. Let's suppose, for the sake of argument, that you're right and evolution is wrong, and not just plain old ordinary wrong, but dangerously wrong, absolutely 100% indefensibly not a shred of evidence kind of wrong, the dumbest idea in the history of dumb ideas. The problem is that if we suppose all this, then we immediately collide head on with one particular aspect of reality. And I'm not talking here about any of the scientific evidence. I'm talking about the elephant in the creationist living room, the plain and simple and undeniable fact that the overwhelming consensus in the scientific establishment is that the universe is 13 billion years old, more or less, and that the diversity of life on earth arose through evolution by natural selection from a single common ancestor. Now, of course, this consensus doesn't prove anything. Argument from authority is a logical fallacy. Truth is not decided by popular vote any more than it is decided by public speaking skills. But if evolution really is the single dumbest idea of all time, it does lead one to wonder why virtually the entire scientific establishment seems to have swallowed this dumb idea hook, line, and sinker. How can we account for this anomaly? Well, one possibility is that all these scientists are stupid. This is actually something you profess to believe. You say that you have, quote, searched in vain for one functioning brain cell in anyone who believes in evolution. Now, the idea that scientists believe in this stupid idea because they're stupid is a perfectly respectable, even plausible scientific hypothesis. It seems wrong to me, but I used to be a scientist. So if all scientists are stupid, then I must be stupid too and not just plain old ordinary stupid, but lacking even a single functioning brain cell kind of stupid. And if I'm that stupid, maybe I'm so stupid that I can't even recognize my own stupidity. So my skepticism of the stupidity theory is exactly what you would expect if scientists were all stupid. This is the problem with stupidity. It doesn't yield readily to introspection, though at the risk of stating what should be painfully obvious, I feel compelled to point out that this particular train does run both ways. 
Anyway, there's another possibility that is almost the exact opposite of this, and that is that we scientists are so fiendishly clever that we have somehow managed to foist this stupid idea onto humanity, even though we know perfectly well that evolution is the dumbest idea of all time and there's not a shred of evidence for it. Maybe there's some kind of a diabolical conspiracy to suppress this knowledge. Like I said before, I used to be a scientist, so I can tell you from firsthand experience that if there's a conspiracy, they didn't let me in on it. But again, this is exactly what you would expect me to say if I were part of the conspiracy. I can think of a third possibility. Maybe we scientists believe in evolution because we are possessed by Satan. Obviously, I think that's a ridiculous idea, but remember, we're operating here under the assumption that I'm dead wrong about evolution, so maybe I'm dead wrong about my satanic possession as well. If you think about it, it kind of makes sense. If Satan is deceiving me about evolution, then surely he would also want to deceive me about the fact that I'm being deceived. Otherwise, the deception might not work so well. So again, for me to deny being possessed by Satan is exactly what you would expect if I were possessed by Satan. There are other possibilities as well. In fact, there's an infinite number of them. Maybe scientists all have a particular kind of brain tumor that causes us to believe in evolution, despite the fact that it's false. Maybe scientists are actually cleverly disguised space aliens. Maybe we're living in the matrix. Maybe the universe was created last Thursday or maybe Wednesday. I could go on and on and on. There are an infinite number of possibilities and most of them probably sound ridiculous to you. At least I hope they do. But notice that none of them can actually be proven false by any evidence. If you go deep enough into the conspiracy theory rabbit hole, you can account for anything. And that is why science rejects conspiracy theories. It's not because conspiracy theories are necessarily wrong. It's because they're unfalsifiable. So let's go back to the stupidity theory. I can't prove it's false by my testimony, but maybe there's some other way. Maybe there's some evidence that you can verify independent of my testimony that will shed some light on things. So here's an idea. In Matthew chapter seven, Jesus said, by their fruits you shall know them. Now, Jesus was talking about morality and not science, but perhaps his wisdom is applicable here. In terms of generating a general grip on truth and the presence of one or two functioning brain cells, the fruits of science seem pretty impressive to me. Vaccines, antibiotics, chemotherapy, computers, smartphones, the internet, the fact that you and I are able to have this conversation face to face, even though we're over a thousand miles apart, all of these things are kind of hard to account for if the scientific establishment is completely overrun with morons. In fact, one has to wonder, where are all the YEC-based startup companies? If you really have a better handle on the truth than all those idiot scientists out there, why are you and your fellow creationists not leveraging the superior knowledge as a competitive advantage in some commercial endeavor? Why aren't the YEC geologists running rings around the old earthers in finding coal and oil deposits? To sustain the stupidity hypothesis, it's not just all the scientists who would have to be stupid, but all the venture capitalists too. It would take one hell of a lot of stupid to overcome all of that greed. And it's not just the absence of wealthy YEC captains of industry that looks fishy. Where are the papers? If you're right and I'm wrong, there should be a fat stack of scientific papers sitting next to that fat stack of cash. Where are they? Just as you, just as you have searched in vain for a functioning brain cell in a Darwinist, I have searched in vain for an argument from a creationist that was presented in a properly referenced scientific paper. A few weeks ago, I was debating uh, John Maddox, one of our uh, moderators, and he promised to send me, uh, he claimed to have a bunch of papers proving evolution is false, and he promised to send me some. I uh, hasn't done it yet. Um, I looked on your website, tons of videos, no scientific papers. 
I've heard some creationists say that all of these failures are because it's too hard to fight the headwinds of opposition that you get from the establishment because they're too heavily invested in Darwinism. Those would have to be some mighty strong headwinds if you're failing despite the fact that you have both God and the truth on your side. But there is a teeny tiny grain of truth to this. It is really hard to overturn an established scientific theory, but that's not because of institutional opposition. It's because the reason that established scientific theories are established is that a lot of people have already tried to overturn them and failed. But every now and then it does happen, and when it does, scientists celebrate this as a great achievement because overturning existing theories is exactly how science makes progress. The most famous and revered scientists are precisely those who succeeded in overthrowing the prevailing theories of their day. Newton overthrew Ptolemy, Einstein overthrew Newton, Russell and Whitehead overthrew Leibniz, and then Gödel overthrew Russell and Whitehead. The history of science is chock full of stories like these. Plate tectonics, quantum mechanics, Hubble's expanding universe, Helicobacter pylori, prions, reverse transcriptase, retroviruses, I could go on and on and on. Every one of these was a radical idea at the time that it was proposed, and every one was initially met with resistance, but every one eventually prevailed on the evidence. That is how science works. We find mistakes in our current theories and we fix them and we keep doing this until the process converges. And the thing that makes science cool is that the process does converge. The more mistakes we find and fix, the harder it gets to find new ones. So if you really can demonstrate that evolution is wrong and the earth is 6,000 years old, then fame and fortune and Nobel prizes await you. But I've watched your videos, not all of them, but several hours worth. I've read Answers in Genesis and William Lane Craig and Michael Behe and John Sanford, and I have not found anything even vaguely resembling a sound scientific argument. All I found is a litany of logical fallacies, a failure to distinguish between science and theology, and a lack of appreciation for the fact that just because a hypothesis is intuitively plausible, that does not make it true. I've seen straw men and gish gallops and arguments from incredulity and ad hominems and hitting SpongeBob dolls over the head with hammers. If I may offer a word of advice, if you really want to be taken seriously by people like me, then you might want to reconsider the wisdom of exhibiting a public persona that behaves as if you were still in the fourth grade. So please enlighten me, Dr. Kent, the science gent. I would absolutely love for you to convince me that you're right and I'm wrong, because if you succeed, that would mean that I had a front row seat to one of the greatest advances in the history of science. But I'll give you long odds against. Well, that was 10 minutes right on the dot. So you did a good job timing that opening. Very Thanks. Clear, concise and articulate. Thanks so much, uh, Ron. Over to you, uh, Kent, whenever you're ready. Take your time. Well, thank you, sir. This is a, a very typical argument for majority opinion, which, as you said, means nothing. I think if you looked at all the journals in North Korea, you wouldn't find any articles in favor of capitalism. Not one. So therefore, communism must be good. Same thing in China and other countries like that. So the argument breaks down on its face very easily. I think you'll find all the major branches of science were started by creationists, not by evolutionists. I would defy you to show me one advancement in science that really ties in with the evolutionary theory. Now, the people who did the advancement might happen to believe in evolution, but that is their religion, which has nothing to do with the science. Uh, so the fact that a bunch of people believe something does not make it true, and it has nothing to do with advancements in science. And if science keeps overturning uh, the previous belief system, at some point you're going to have to stumble upon truth. I think Pythagoras did that and came up with that. I think the trigonometry sine-cosine tangent functions have been well established for a long time, and there's no need to overturn it. It works, it's fine. 
So it is possible to have truth that is really old, like the value of pi, 3.14159, that doesn't need to be changed. It, it works. It's, it's true. So we don't always have to overturn things. Some, uh, some truths are really, really old. Okay, um, the Bible says in 2 Peter chapter 3, Knowing this first, there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lusts and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? The Bible says they are willingly ignorant of the creation and the flood and the coming judgment of God. And I covered this in my seminar series on drdino.com and on my YouTube channel, Kent Hovind Official. I believe there are many people today who are, do not understand the original creation or they willingly do not want to accept the idea that there's a creator. One of those was a guy named James Hutton in the 1700s. Uh, he de developed the idea of uniformitarianism. The idea that the way things happen today is the way they've always been happening, which would deny any catastrophe, like a flood of the days of Noah. His work had a strong influence on Charles Lyell. Charles Lyell is the guy mostly responsible for developing what we call today the geologic column. Cenozoic, Mesozoic, Paleozoic, all that kind of stuff. Charles Lyell was a scoffer. He hated the Bible. He was a Scottish lawyer. He wrote the book in 1830, Principles of Geology. He said, men of superior talent, he's talking about himself, kind of like you did about all the PhDs who believe in, in evolution, who thought for themselves and were not blinded by authority like the Bible. <clears throat> he talked about, you, have, you believe in an ancient doctrine or you rest on scriptural authority. His book is full of mocking. If he'd have had a SpongeBob, he'd have whacked him on the head too, but he'd have labeled it a creationist. Uh, and I appreciate the comment, fourth grade. I try hard to keep all my stuff down fourth grade level. Uh, he said, uh, mix up philosophy with sound science and reasoning like that. He, he reasoned philosophically against those who regarded the disordered state of Earth's crust as exhibiting signs of the wrath of God. In other words, he did not believe in the flood. Uh, so Lyle was the primary guy who developed our current geologic column. It's been modified since, but basically along the same line. The idea that each of the layers is a different age and the top layer is younger. The whole geologic column does not exist any place on the planet except in the textbook. He made up this, most of the names that we still use, Cretaceous, Jurassic, Triassic, Permian, Mississippian, Devonian, Silurian, etc. Each layer was given a name, an age, and an index fossil. During the 1925 Scopes Monkey Trial, Clarence Darrow, the atheist lawyer, said, the lowest layers are obviously the oldest. Whoa, stop right there. Think about it for a minute. If the top layer is younger, where's all this new material coming from? Outer space? Where, how can one layer be a different age than another layer? If you shuffle a deck of cards, is the top card younger? No, they're shuffled. If you shake a jar with water and dirt and it separates the gravel, sand, clay like it always will, there'll be gravel and then sand and then silt and then later clay. If you wait long enough, the small particles settle out. Is the top layer younger? No, they're all in the jar at the same time. They're all the same age. They just got sorted. How can the top layer be younger? Is the material coming from outer space? All the layers are the same age. The entire geologic column taught to the kids since 1830 is baloney. It doesn't exist anywhere. There's articles about this. Does the geologic column exist? No, other than the textbook. I live in Lenox, Alabama in an old abandoned gravel pit, and we have lots of layers here. The geologic column is actually the Bible for the evolutionist. It can only be found one place in the world, and that's the textbooks. This uh, earth science author uh, admitted it. I taught from this book one year. He said, if there were a column of sediments, unfortunately, no such column exists. It doesn't exist. There is no geologic column. It's taught in all the schools, though. 
Uh, if it did exist, it'd be 100 miles thick. So one of the lies I cover in my textbook is about the geologic column. Uh, this article is a detailed examination of the young earth creationist claim that the geologic column does not exist. It is shown that the entire geologic column exists in North Dakota. Well, one place, they're saying they have it. <clears throat> I think with all the random shuffling of all the different sediments, you're likely to get a particular layer you want in at least once in the whole planet. Uh, well, we could talk all day on this, but the whole idea is based on index fossils. They find a fossil and they'll say, oh, this is from the Jurassic Age or Triassic or Mississippian or Devonian or Silurian. Uh, it's true the Earth has layers. That's not the question. I've been to Grand Canyon, been rafting in it, been helicoptering down in it. I love studying Earth science. Uh, there are different layers. But why are there no erosion marks between these layers? I mean, if that layer sat there for four million years waiting for the next one, don't you think it's going to rain once in a while? Cause a little erosion in there? You can shake up a jar of dirt and it'll automatically separate gravel, sand, silt, clay. That's the way it works, hydrologic sorting. We have these things that we give as part of our tour. And Ron, if you come down, I'll give you the tour of Dinosaur Adventureland and we'll show you our little sand art toy. Every time we tip it over, it makes different layers. This one has two different densities of sand, black and white. But why does it make 50 layers? Well, the moon pulls the water up on the earth and causes the high tide. The moon holds that tide like a magnet, a bump of water. We're spinning around under the bump, basically. So we see the bump go up, down, up, down, up, down, every high tide, low tide. The moon never sees that. All the moon sees is high tide. So if the earth were covered by water totally, by Noah, like in Noah's flood, the tide could become harmonic. It would not get interrupted by the continents banging into it. South America, North America, an uninterrupted tide studies have shown would be about a 200 foot tidal change on the planet every six hours, 12 and a half minutes between high tide, low tide. Well, if the water came up 200 feet in Lenox, Alabama, uh, we're at 31 degrees north latitude here in Lenox, Alabama. If the water came out, you can do the math on that. Uh, I taught trig for years. Uh, you'll find a uh, space up here. Okay, right here. Lenox, Alabama is turning approximately 886 miles an hour toward the east. So if uh, we're going 886 miles, they'll call it 900. If the water's coming up 200 feet, in order to fill that bump, the water has to rush in sideways at the same speed the Earth is turning. Well, at this latitude, it's nearly 900 miles an hour. At the North Pole, it is zero. If the water's going sideways at 900 miles an hour, it's going to create turbidity currents. It's going to create stratification, rapid layering. Thousands of layers would be deposited in just a few weeks. Moving water automatically separates things. You guys, this entire religion of evolution is based on the assumption that the layers are different ages, and they're not. Water rushing sideways, especially nearly 900 miles an hour for a couple hours, would tumble all the rocks around, explaining why we have rounded gravel all over the world. I live in a gravel pit, a former gravel pit. Well, I can give you 10 billion rocks if you'd like, and they're sorted into layers. These layers all happened as a result of sideways movement of the water, stratification. In addition to that, you get liquefaction with the moon lifting the tide up and down. You get liquefaction and stratification at the same time. So the geologic column does not exist. This guy said, uh, American Journal of Science, a peer-reviewed article. The intelligent layman has long suspected circular reasoning in the use of rocks to date fossils and fossils to date rocks. The geologist has never bothered to think of a good reply. It cannot be argued, denied from a strictly philosophical standpoint, geologists are arguing in a circle. The succession of organisms has been determined by a study of their remains in the rocks, and the age of the rocks is determined by the organisms. Use the fossil to date the rock and use the rock to date the fossil. Pure circular reasoning, pure baloney, in my humble, humble, totally unbiased opinion. 
Uh, New Scientist, a peer-reviewed journal, said, ever since William Smith, at the beginning of the 19th century, fossils have been and still are the best and most accurate method of dating and correlating the rocks. Apart from very modern examples, I can think of no cases of radioactive decay being used to date fossils. Radiometric dating would not have been feasible if the geologic column had not been erected first. So my stand would be, they use the rocks to date the fossils, they use the fossils to date the rocks, it is pure circular reasoning, it is absolute insanity in any court of law. A judge with a second grade education would say, stop right there, this doesn't make sense. We date the rocks by the fossils, he said, Niles Eldridge, a famous evolutionist, he said, this poses something of a problem. If we date the rocks by the fossils, how can we then turn around and talk about patterns of evolutionary change through time in the fossil record? Well, Niles, good question. Answer it, please. We've got just under a minute, Dr. Hoven, just under a minute. Well, said, the rocks do date the fossils, but the fossils date the rocks more accurately. Genius, absolute <laughs> SpongeBob, whack him on the head, okay? Uh, circularity is inherent. He said, the charge of circular reasoning can be handled several ways. It can be ignored. In other words, none of your business because you're not a scientist. It can be denied, it can be admitted, or it can be avoided by pragmatic reasoning. So geologic column, is, it is absolute insanity to say the lowest layers are obviously the oldest. No, they're not. When water's moving sideways, it deposits multiple layers horizontally. So you could have a fossil on top that's actually older than a fossil on the bottom. Geologic column doesn't exist and it, uh, the rocks are dated by the index fossil. So I rest my case. It doesn't exist anywhere except in the imagination, SpongeBob, imagination of those who have been taught to believe it. And so it's sad that the whole evolution theory is based on this crazy geologic column, uh, that the layers are different ages and they're simply not. I'm sorry, time's up, go ahead. Whoops, awesome. Thanks for that opening there, uh, Dr. Hogan. Once again, clear, concise. I appreciate the visuals. So uh, good job to the both of you on your openings. We will jump into a rebuttal round. I've got six minutes. Uh, this one I'll have to be a little bit more strict on, so I'll, I'll time it as well. But um, Ron, it's, it's all yours. My goodness, where to begin? Um, you threw a lot of stuff at me there. Uh, so like I said, I am not a geologist, so I can't really... Uh, speak in an informed matter to the geology. Let me instead focus on an explanation that you offered as to why scientists uh, believe in evolution. Um, you quoted, I think it was Second Peter, that there would be scoffers who would reject the truth to satisfy their lusts. Did I get that right? That is what Second Peter says, yes, sir. And you believe that to be true? Uh, not with all of them, but with many, oh yeah. I have no idea if that's your case or not, but... Okay, so let me tell you a little bit about what exactly what kind of lust do you imagine that scientists are, are satisfying with the theory of evolution? Well, many people don't like the idea of having a God tell them what to do in any area of their life, whether it be uh, the moral area, you know, i.e., you know, uh, sexual things or financial things, you know, is it okay to steal or rob or cheat or lie or, you know, inflate? Okay. Uh, the moral standards, basically, they, they lust of the flesh, the things that they want. Okay, uh, that's what I thought. I just wanted to make sure that I had it right before I give you this response. Okay, okay go ahead. Uh, so let me tell you a little bit about, about me. <laughs> um, I, uh, I, I'm an evolutionist, I'm an atheist, but I don't think it's fair to call me a scoffer. Um, I have been studying young earth creationist, young earth creationism uh, with as much good faith as I can muster 
because I think it's important to come to an understanding of points of view that one doesn't agree with. Uh, I have been doing this in earnest for several years. I've been studying the Bible since I was 12 when I, my parents sent me to a YMCA summer camp where I had a brief conversion and uh, it felt the presence of the Holy Spirit. Um, the, one of the reasons I'm an atheist today is because of that conversion experience. And I came home and told my parents about my experience and my parents, to their credit, did not try to talk me out of it. Instead, my father handed me a Bible and said, great, you're a Christian, you should read the Bible. And I started reading the Bible and it didn't take me long to become convinced just from reading the Bible that this could not possibly be the word of God. Um, one of the things that I'd actually be interested in talking about during the discussion portion is to find out, to, to delve into this more, because you always open with, you believe that the Bible is 100% true and scientifically accurate. I really would like to explore that a little bit more, whether you take the truth of the Bible as an assumption or whether you have some supporting evidence for it. Uh, you've, I've never heard you explain that in any of your talks. Um, as far as not wanting somebody in charge of my life, <sighs> I have been married to the same woman for 25 years. Um, I don't steal. Uh, most of my neighbors consider me a pretty reasonable guy. So I don't know what kind of things you imagine that I might be trying to get away with by not believing in God. Um, but there might be some scoffers out there. Uh, I, I, I put to you that I'm not one of them. So to account for me, you're going to have to come up with something else. There's one other thing that you mentioned that I want to speak to, and that is truths that never need to be challenged. And you gave an example of trigonometry. It's a really interesting example because that's not really science, it's mathematics. But even in mathematics and, and geometry, uh, there, is an there are examples of uh, the truth being revised. And there's, there's a really wonderful historical example of this because the foundations of geometry were laid down uh, in ancient Greece by Euclid. And he had these five postulates and the first four were really simple and intuitively obvious. And the fifth one was kind of long and wordy and weird. And for 2000 years, uh, mathematicians tried to figure out a way to prove the fifth postulate from the first four. And it turned out that you can't do it. Not only can you not do it, you can prove that you can't do it. And when, and in fact, you can assume the opposite of Euclid's fifth postulate. And when you do that, that opens up a whole new world of mathematics and science. And it's in fact, one of the foundations of modern science. Non-Euclidean geometry is the foundation of general relativity, which is one of the cornerstones of modern science. So even there, new discoveries and revision of old knowledge is in play. Um, and so my, my reaction to all of these uh, geological arguments, and there are a couple that I do know a little bit about that we can talk about, but my general reaction is, if you're right, why haven't you published this in a journal of geology? Why are you not a famous geologist? Why are you not famous for having brought the truth and revised our knowledge and brought us closer to the truth? Should I answer that? Are you done? Is that I'm your time? done. Yeah, that's. <laughs> well, thank you for that, Ron. I'll just stop the clock there.
Uh, before we get into the uh, discussion, that means that Dr. Holton, you'll have uninterrupted time to respond to anything you'd like to from Ron. You got uh, six minutes, so go ahead. Okay, well, thank you, sir. Well, as far as why not publish, I've put out probably 15 million videos in 42 languages. We have, uh, what, 1,400 YouTube um, programs up online. Um, I don't care what the established scientific majority think. I would not even try to publish. If I were in North Korea, I wouldn't try to publish an article about capitalism. I would just go and teach the truth to grow those who want to hear it. So um, I, I think that's an argument for majority opinion, which is, uh, I think, a poor way to take this debate. So I don't care what the majority thinks. I care. I want to know the truth. There, there have been truths established in mathematics and in science and in many areas of life. There are things that just don't have to change, like the acceleration due to gravity. I think physical science is one of the sciences, uh, biological science. If you want to take biological science, I think the truth has been well established that uh, dogs produce dogs. Cows produce cows without exception. No exceptions. Nobody's ever, nobody on the planet has ever seen a dog produce a non-dog or a cow produce a non-cow or a mosquito produce a non-mosquito. Now, we currently have 70 varieties of sunflowers that are recognized in, in the world. They might have had a common ancestor called a sunflower. There are 195 recognized breeds of goats, and they might have had a common ancestor called a goat. All we've ever seen, though, is exactly what the Bible said would happen 20 times in the first seven chapters. They will bring forth after their kind. Ten times in the first chapter, they bring forth after their kind. There are no exceptions to that. And you may want to ask the question, well, what is a kind? Well, I think generally it's intuitive to a five-year-old. They can tell you that's the same kind of animal or same kind of plant. There are a few that are tough to categorize, I understand. But as a general rule, I think most people with a half a brain would say, you know, the 70 varieties of sunflowers are still the same kind of life form. They're still a sunflower. So we have, it's established scientific fact in biology that everything produces after its kind. And there are no exceptions to that. So if you wish to believe SpongeBob style, that a mosquito and a sunflower and a whale are related. You're welcome to believe that, but that is not science. I don't know why I can't get evolutionists to admit they have a religion. You may believe, and I can show you the charts where they do believe that a whale and a mosquito have a common ancestor. They really believe that. You may really believe that. That's fine. I don't care what you believe, but don't call it science. And don't make me pay to teach that to all the kids in school that is part of science because it's not. There are, I think, eight varieties of rec recognized varieties of bears in the world, and they may have had a common ancestor. I don't know, but I bet it was a bear. So the biological science tells us everything produces babies that are similar, very similar to the parents. So anything other than that is not science. It's religion. You believe whales and mosquitoes are related. You do not know that. And you said you had a conversion experience, and then you... Uh, started reading the Bible and gave up on it. You're age 12, for heaven's sake. I mean, you could figure it out then? Yeah. Okay. Um, so your brief conversion, I don't know if you got converted or not. I hope you did. I hope you do. I, I'm trying to convert you tonight, Ron. Like you see, you serve the Lord and get, give your heart to him. But there are 20 times in the first seven chapters of the Bible where it says everything will bring forth after their kind, if you include the Noah story where he told him to bring them onto the ark after their kind. There are probably about 8,000 kinds of animals that would have to go on the ark. Fish did not have to go on. Insects did not have to go on. Insects can survive a flood just fine. God said, told Noah to bring those. They, would, they said, they will come to you. You didn't have to go get any of them. He said, they'll come to you, all those in whose nostrils is the breath of life on dry land. Well, that would not mean fish, would not mean, not, would not mean insects. So let's assume that number's reasonable. 8,000 varieties of animals could have easily produced all the millions of variations of those. The eight kinds of bears might have come from a bear. I wouldn't argue that. 
there are two varieties of beavers in the world, and they might have come from a common ancestor called a beaver. I think there are 1,400 varieties of bats. Uh, there might have been several pairs of bats on the ark. I don't know. But the variations that we've seen all stay within what everybody with one eye and half a brain would say is the same kind of animal. Uh, <clears throat> I don't know how many varieties of corn farmers have developed, a bunch. You know, there's the sweet corn, the sour corn, the popcorn, the speckled corn. There's, I come from Illinois, corn country. But they, and they might have had a common ancestor called corn. But why you guys believe that corn and mosquito and whale have a common ancestor blows my mind. I'm baffled that somebody would believe such a thing. And then they believe it all came from an amoeba, and they believe life started from non-living material. How on earth are you going to do that? And that everything in the universe fit into a dot smaller than a period on a page. Why would they call that science? It's not even common sense. You couldn't squeeze a gallon of water into a dot smaller than a period on a page. So uh, I think it's very reasonable to believe that since we only have ever seen biologically animals and plants produce the same kind, I think they've now developed a thousand varieties of apples, might have had a common ancestor. Most of the variations that we see can't survive in the wild. You've got to babysit them uh, or they'll die. You know, you got, the farmer might want to get a cow that gives more milk. So they crossbreed cows till they get one with a huge udder that gives, I saw the world record holder at one time in Illinois, gave 100 pounds of milk a day. Could barely walk. Wouldn't survive two hours out in the wild. But as long as you babysit it, keep it in the barn where the coyote can't get it, it does fine. But the variation, it's still a cow. It's still giving milk. It's not giving cheese or butter. Uh, it's, it's giving milk. So all we've ever seen in recorded history is exactly what the Bible said would happen. They bring forth after their kind. All over the world, we see petrified trees standing up. I got pictures on the screen here. You've got you 30 seconds. This indicates the layers are not different ages. All the layers formed rapidly. Petrified standing trees. There are thousands of them around the world. Why would we believe these layers are different ages? It just blows my mind that somebody could believe such a thing. Anyway, I got plenty of material on that. Go ahead. Awesome. Okay, well, thanks uh, for the rebuttals from the both of you. Uh, it's been really good so far. We've got a great audience, some good questions and super chat. So thanks to the audience. So for the discussion portion, I just want to make sure though, before we start, I've got 20 minutes on the clock to make sure that the, the debate stays on topic. Is there reasonable evidence for evolution? Uh, Kent just ended. So Ron, if you wanted to start by either rebutting something um, Kent may have said, or even just asking a question, however you'd like to start. Go ahead. I've got 20 minutes. Hey, uh, and real quick, uh, SFT, before we get going, everybody, if you have questions uh, for the Q&A session, make sure you tag me at Logical Plausible Probable. Um, if you're doing a super chat, don't worry about tagging me. But if you're not, make sure you tag me. I'm the one that's collecting all the questions. And uh, if you want to get your question read for sure, make sure to do a super chat. All right, Ron, uh, floor is yours, sir. Oh, I think Ron might be on mute. Sorry about that, Ron. Am I on? Perfect. We can hear you. Okay. Um, yeah, so uh, I want to start out by making sure that I understand the criteria that you apply uh, to determine truth. Um, so one of the things that you implied but didn't outright say is that if we haven't seen something happen, that it hasn't happened. So you said all we've ever seen is animals or, or life forms bringing forth after their kind. So dogs bring forth dogs and horses bring forth horses and cows bring forth cows. And we've never seen anything else. And you infer from that that nothing else ever happened. Is that right? 
No, no, I said it's not science. Science, the word science comes from the word seer, which means knowledge. We know cows produce cows. You can infer anything you want from that. I didn't say it's not true. I said it's not science. Okay. It shouldn't, evolution should not be included in a science class. It should be included in a religion class. Okay. And people I, are don't, I, don't want to, want. I don't want to quibble over terminology here. Um, okay. It, the, the thing that you call science seems to me to be very different than the thing, the activity that scientists call science. Um, and, and the thing about the word is that, well, we scientists got to it first, so I'm going to lay claim to it. Um, the, the process that, we, that, that science is all about is finding the most plausible explanation that accounts for all of the observed data. And it actually makes no claim to finding truth, at least not with a capital T. The only reason that science is noteworthy is because it turns out that when you go through this process of trying to, uh, uh, to develop the most plausible explanation that accounts for all the data, that process converges. And it converges to what the scientific mainstream says. And it does that because the scientific mainstream is constantly undergoing this process of, of challenge and correction. So I'm still, so you're, I'm trying to understand your mode of argument. Yes, it's true that all we've, it's actually not true that all we've ever seen is dogs bringing forth dogs, but let's suppose for the sake of argument that that's true. Um, all that is, is just the observation that there are things that can't interbreed with each other today and haven't been able to interbreed with each other for the course of recorded human history, which has only been about 4,000 years, which isn't very long on evolutionary and geologic timescales. So just because we haven't seen something happen doesn't mean that it hasn't happened. And it's entirely possible that this thing that we haven't seen happen recently happened in the past, and that that is the most plausible explanation for what we see today. Do you admit that as a possibility? No, absolutely not. That's got nothing to do with science. If all we've ever observed is dogs produce dogs in 4,000 years of recorded human history, why would somebody believe it was different in the past? If it, if it could, why don't they do it today? Go to the laboratory, make a dog produce something that's non-dog. But it could pick something with a shorter generation time, like bacteria. Every 20 minutes, make bacteria always produce bacteria. Do you know what a mule, you know what a mule is? Well, let's just make sure uh, Ken has equal time to respond. Okay. Like, you can get thousands of, you can, one person could live long enough to see thousands of generations of bacteria. Th generations of bacteria. Okay. They always produce bacteria. So it is not plausible that if we give it more time, it will be different. It is religious to believe that if we gave it more time, it would be different, but it's not plausible science. Uh, the most plausible explanation is, since dogs have always produced dogs, they must have started off from an original dog. We don't ever see any animal or bacteria or plant or anything ever produce anything other than the same kind. So no, it is not plausible. Adding time is the SpongeBob imagination magic cure-all for evolution. That's their rescue. That rescues them. Oh, well, give it enough time, it'll happen. No, the impossible does not happen given any amount of time. Uh, and you said science is open for challenge and correction. I agree. I challenge them to produce a non-dog from a dog or to produce living things from non-living. I'll give you, oh, put a frog in a blender, blend him up, and then I'll give you, you can have the, what the results. All the molecules to make a frog are right there. All of them in one blender. Put it back together, make a frog, make it come alive. 
they've never produced life, and they've never seen any animal or plant or insect or anything produce anything other than its kind. So that's why I say evolution is a religion. And I'm glad you said the course of recorded human history is about 4,000 years because you're about right. Doesn't that, shouldn't that ring a few bells? Like, hey, the Bible says there was a flood 4,400 years ago. And that would, why? Are humans actually getting smarter? Or could it be that they survived a flood and started recording history after that? So anyway, all we've ever seen is dogs produce dogs. There are no exceptions. If you wish to believe otherwise, I don't care what you believe. But you shouldn't call it science. And the fact that a bunch of scientists believe that, there's probably some really smart scientists in China who believe in communism. Okay. That has nothing to do with their science. That's a political view. And I happen to believe it's totally not only not true, it's insane to believe in communism. But that doesn't mean, that doesn't mean because they are science, they're scientists and can produce something in the laboratory, therefore their political views are correct. You may be a very smart man, Ron, retired from Google, doctor's degree. The fact that you believe in evolution doesn't mean they don't match. It's not part of it. You might be really smart in some areas and need SpongeBob hammer on, on the other areas. Right. So I'll, I'll try to get you converted. Go ahead. Okay, Ron, you got equal time. Go ahead. So just to be clear, I'm not making the argument that I'm right because I'm smart. In fact, I'm doing the exact opposite. Uh, I am open-minded. And I have you over here telling me one thing, and I have the scientists over here telling me something else. And I just happen to have spent time with them, and so I know them, and I know how they operate. And because of my experience with them, I happen to know that they're, they're not engaged in a conspiracy. Your, illusion, your, your comparison of the scientific establishment to North Korea is completely off base. Um, and but I can't prove it to you here and now, so uh, I'm just trying to figure out how where to take this argument, where to take this discussion so that it can be productive here and now. So why don't you try to convince me that the Bible is true? And let me show you indicated place to start. You said we've never seen a dog produce a non-dog. Well, there's something else we've never seen, and that is a global worldwide flood. Now we have a written account of one. And one possible explanation for why we have a written account of one is that it happened. But another possible explanation for why we have a written account for one is that there was a local flood that was really big by the standards of the Bronze Age people who wrote down the account of it. But it wasn't worldwide. How could the people who wrote the account of it 4,000 years ago possibly have known whether or not it was worldwide? They didn't have satellite imagery. They didn't have airplanes. All they could do was look at the area immediately surrounding themselves. And that might have all been flooded. But how could they possibly have known whether the entire planet was flooded? Uh, I'll give you another. Oh, OK, go ahead. Well, it's a fair question. Uh, I'm not asking that to be taught at taxpayer expense in the school system. So the burden of proof is not on me to prove anything about the Bible. I can believe anything I want, because I'm not making everybody pay for that to be taught. The burden of proof is, and the purpose of this debate is for you to show evidence for evolution. However, the global fl the, the flood in the days of Noah, uh, there are legends from countries all over the world about a global flood, not just the Bible. I mean, many, many cultures, 330 legends about a flood. They're listed on uh, creationism.org, Paul Abramson's website, done a great job of getting them all together in one spot. Read them. Why would there be 330 flood legends if there wasn't a flood? Secondly, why would most of these flood legends include somebody building a big boat? Uh, if, there's a if there's a local flood, 
move. You don't need a boat at all. Just, hey, flood's coming. Move. It took 120 years to build a boat to avoid a local flood. You can move a long ways in 120 years, a long ways, probably around the world a couple times. So, And why gather all the animals? Some are going to survive somewhere else. So I think the local flood idea is ridiculous. Certainly, I, I, again, I don't have to prove it. I believe the Bible is true. They find fossils of all kinds. Fossilized clams in the closed position are found on top of Mount Everest, tallest mountain in the world. Well, when clams die, they open. You can walk along the beach and find a million seashells. But to find petrified closed clams, I've got probably thousands in our museum here. Come on down and see it in Lenox, Alabama. We have certainly hundreds, maybe even thousands of petrified closed clams. Well, nothing fossilizes today at all. I mean, if you see an animal, animals die all the time. They don't fossilize. The coyotes drag them around or the buzzards or the ants. They, 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 they turn into soil. We find fossil animals all over the world had to be buried rapidly. Complete articulated skeletons of giant animals like dinosaurs are found fully articulated by the tens of thousands in one big graveyard. There's the Karoo Formation has 800,000 vertebrate animals in one big graveyard in Africa. I think that's a big flood. So I think there's plenty of geological evidence that there was a flood. Certainly there are layers all over the world. They find fossils on every continent, including Antarctica, uh, and so I think the evidence could easily be interpreted. You find f examples of rapid erosion, like Grand Canyon, had to be formed very quickly. Uh, and I cover all that in my video. I can talk about it now if you'd like. But Grand Canyon probably formed in about a week, not millions of years. Google dam break at Dinosaur Adventure Land and watch our little dam get <laughs> washed out in seven minutes. Grand Canyon is a washed out spillway. The lake in Michigan two months ago that overflowed, uh, the dam overflowed. It lost 21 billion gallons of water in one hour. One hour, 21 billion gallons drained. A, Grand Canyon would have lost a lot more than that. It's, the top of the canyon is 5,000 feet higher than where the river enters. And so there was a big lake 5,000 feet deep behind there. Went over the top, washed that canyon out probably in a few, a few week, week, week or a few weeks max. So I think the evidence for <clears throat> rapid erosion, that stratification, fossilization. Fossils don't form at all anywhere in the world today with, by any that we've ever observed. But yet we certainly find fossils by the trillions. What? Why? I think the, the, the worldwide flood is the best explanation. But again, I'm not making everybody pay for that to be taught. I think it's logical. I believe it. I'm going to teach it to everybody who will listen. So go ahead. So just a point of clarification about your m political motivation for this. You really don't want creationism to be taught in the schools? Well, I'm not even sure we should have public schools. Uh, if we're going to have them, we certainly shouldn't involve anybody's religion and evolution's a religion. I think schools should teach real science. What's your science is dogs produce dogs. What's your definition of religion? Is, well, the religion is that dogs and mosquitoes are related. That's not, it's not science. So how can I distinguish between science and religion? Because all you've done is just list two propositions, one of which you happen to believe in and the other which you don't. I don't see any way to generalize that so that I can distinguish between science and religion. science books. I'm not against science, but they've mixed a religion in with it called evolution. I, you think you can study all the anatomy of the human body or any animal body. You say this is the deltoid, the biceps, the triceps, the flexors, the extenders. You're not I'm answering not my question. Okay. My, my question is, how do I tell the difference between science and religion? Well, I don't know. Maybe you've been brainwashed to the point where you can't tell the difference anymore. Well, then but then educate, educate me. me. 
after after we're done here, I'm hey, going hey, to go hey, out guys, this, the world. this is kind of turning into a uh, philosoph- philosophy and uh, religion debate. Um, why don't we bring it back around to uh, talking about the hey, evidence for or against guys, evolution? Hang on. we got to change batteries. We're going to drop off screen for a minute. Go ahead. We'll come right back. Actually, John, did do you want to read a couple super chats while uh, Kent is gone? The second he comes back, we'll let. Uh, well, I guess that wasn't too long. Never mind. <laughs> yeah, if you guys wanted to continue. Okay. Well, I would say we would tell the word science means knowledge. What we can see, study, test, observe, demonstrate. We can see dogs produce dogs. You cannot see dogs produce anything other than a dog. Going forward in time, all we see going backward in time for recorded history, that's all we've ever seen. So if you wish to believe that dogs came from something non-dog, ultimately a bacteria, that's fine, believe that, but don't call it part of science. And it's hard for people who've been trained up in this for years and years in school system to recognize, wow, I got fed a religious belief and it's not provable. I should admit it, this is not science. It is science that life produces life. It is not science that non-living material can produce life. But can you guys? to believe that somehow, long ago and far away, if you add billions of years, life started from non-living material. But you can't, have to believe you, that. You believe that. Not, you oh, believe I, that, I, that life comes from non-living material. I believe a God, can, a God can take non-living material and make it come alive. I think General Motors can take iron ore and turn it into a car because of intelligence. So to add God into the equation, absolutely, I, I agree with that. But it's, I believe that. I can't prove that to anybody. But you guys want to do, get life to come from non-living material without a, with no designer. No, it's, it's not, something that, it's not something that we want. It's not something that we want. It's a result of the process that we go through that produces these results that no other process ever invented by mankind has, has been able to produce. Okay, what's the process that produces life from non-living material? I'm not talking about the that process that produces life. I'm talking about the process that produces scientific knowledge. I'm talking okay. about the process that scientists call science, which is not at all like the process that you call science. We're using well, the same talking- word to talk about two completely different things, and we ought to use a different word for one of them. And I'm going to stake my claim to the use of the word science for what we do because we got there first. <laughs> Wait, wait, wait. Do you mean the evolutionists got there first? You are way behind on your history. No, the All science, the scientists science got there. started by creationists who believe God made the world. That's, they were seeking for some order and design. So you got here last. That, it is true that the foundational, that the people who established the scientific method were creationists. That's true. But the method that they laid down eventually led them away from that and to evolution. And to all. No, it didn't lead them away from. So you did not get here first. You got here second or no, last. No, I did. Charles Darwin was at, so Newton was a devout Christian, and Charles right. Darwin was also a devout Christian. And in fact, that's one of the reasons that he uh, struggled over whether or not to publish because he was afraid of the consequences of publishing his theory. But his theory, it it was accepted not for any political reason and not because of any pressure and not because of any scoffing and lust. It was accepted by people who were Christians at the time because the evidence supported it. What evidence would support the idea that a dog and a mosquito have a common ancestor? Okay. So you've heard of 23andMe, right? I have. Okay. Do you believe that the res- that when 23andMe tells you that 
your ancestry is a certain thing that that they're correct? I don't see. If you're talking about a human ancestry, they would say mine is Norwegian. I would agree. They can probably do that. I don't think they could look at the chromosomes and say, Kent, you're related to an amoeba. But but they they do that by looking at your DNA, right? Uh Uh-huh. And so you accept that by looking at your DNA, you can tell that you are more or less closely related to another human, right? I'm completely related to humans. I would agree. Okay. But you're more related to some humans than others. So you're more related to right. your immediate family and less related to your distant cousins and even less related to the people in North Korea, right? Correct. Are there, are there any limits to that? Well, so that's the, that's the interesting question. Are there? And for a long time, it was thought that there weren't, but the evidence shows that there aren't. So if you accept that DNA evidence shows that you are are closely related to your immediate family and less closely related to your cousins and even less closely to your distant cousins and even less closely to North Koreans, then the exact same DNA evidence shows that you are even more distantly related, but still very closely related to chimpanzees. You really believe that, don't you? Well, I, the, the, the data is absolutely clear. The similarities in the DNA are beyond dispute. The question is whether this is evidence for relatedness. And it might that not be. Good. There might be something in there that causes some, something to, to diverge, some, some different phenomenon that happens that causes this evidence to no longer be valid once you jump from humans to chimps. It might, it might be. But now the onus is on you to describe what that is because the data is exactly the same in all cases. Okay. You said the onus is on me to to prove that. No, if, if we if you wish to believe humans and chimpanzees are related, we've never seen a chimpanzee produce a non-chimpanzee. The fact that they have similar DNA code could prove the same designer wrote the code. Microsoft PowerPoint has lots of similarities to Microsoft Word, like millions of lines of code that are identical. Okay. It does not mean nobody's writing the code. Okay. It means so, somebody, you're from Google, for heaven's sake. You know about codes. Fine. Yes, absolutely. So here is another plausible alternative hypothesis for that explains the data, and that is that we are designed, and the designer reused some of the code in, diff- from, in, in different designs. Does Google do that? Do they reuse some of the code? Uh, yeah, of course they do. And, and so, like I said, this is a plausible hypothesis. Now, let's explore this. How can we determine? We, we have two alternative hypotheses on the table now. This is how science works. Two alternative right. explanations. We agree on the data. We have two alternative explanations for explaining the data. Now, how do we decide which one is right? Well, I think both sides have to admit we can, maybe can never prove either one. So why would we force everybody to learn one as if it is science when actually it's a it's a religious belief? You believe whales, you believe monkeys or chimpanzees, as you said, and humans are related. If you go back far enough, first yeah, place well, we can't go back in time. Maybe but, we can't prove one. Maybe we can't prove these, but maybe we can. And if we can, so there might be some more evidence out there that we have not explored yet that would support one of these hypotheses hypotheses more than the other. That's possible, right? Well, the title of the debate tonight was the evidence for evolution, so I'd like okay. to hear it. Yeah, Why I do you believe make, you let's, just, let's just make sure Kent is done with his point. Go ahead, uh, okay. Kent. So, Ron, why do you believe you're related to a chimpanzee? Um, 
<laughs> because the overwhelming weight of the evidence indicates that that is the case. But we need to take this one step at a time if you're going to understand it. We, and we need to make sure that we start from some common understanding. So we've, we've already found some common ground here. We agree on that DNA testing is a valid source of data and that humans and chimpanzees do share a lot of DNA code. And our disagreement now is over two alternative explanations for how this came to be, right? Well, let's, let's expand the DNA word a little further. Would you agree that the DNA code itself, whether chimpanzee or human, is mind-boggling in its complexity? Absolutely. Way more than Microsoft or Google or any other computer code ever written. Absolutely. Okay. So we have a code that is beyond our comprehension in its complexity, four-dimensional, four-digit code, not just binary code, that is staggering in its complexity. Yep. So the fact we, we have some similarities with the chimp chimpanzee, I would agree. But you wish to believe that that proves a common ancestor. You, I would say, no, that doesn't prove any. It doesn't, doesn't even you, you, you believe that. You keep saying this, I wish to believe. I don't wish. The only thing I wish for is to arrive at the truth. That's Well, then you'll become a for. Christian tonight. Yay, Great. go for it. Fantastic. So let's, let's keep going. And if the outcome of this is that I end up being a Christian, that's great. <laughs> really. I, I don't have any preconceived notions here. I mean, I do have a strong feeling for how I think this is going to turn out. But my only actual desire is to arrive at the truth. Okay? Yay. <laughs> All right. Hey, so while, while you're climbing that mountain, I'll be waiting for you at the top. Go ahead. Okay. So I'm, I'm no, going to throw a, th a third hypothesis out here. And I'm going to accept the possibility that maybe we were designed. But I'm going to throw out the possibility that we were designed not by a deity, but by an intelligent alien. Okay, that's, another, that's also a plausible hypothesis. It would account for all of the data that we have looked at so far, right? Yeah, but then it po just simply postpones the problem. Of course, where did the alien come from, you know? Okay. But yeah, I understand. And you could argue that, which is why I, I said at the beginning, I'm not asking everybody to pay for my religion to be taught. You guys are asking everybody, making everybody pay for your religion to be taught. Okay. I just wanted to jump in here, guys, because we have gone a bit over on the discussion portion, but I don't want to just, uh, you know, cut you guys off if you'd like to kind of start wrapping up your points um, and address anything you feel like you may not have been able to address, and then we'll move into some okay. short I'll just, cut, I'll just cut to the chase here. It's simply not true that dogs only produce dogs. There are all kinds of exceptions. So if dogs only, dogs only, it, 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 it's not true that uh, that dogs only produce dogs. Dogs can interbreed with coyotes and wolves. Horses can interbreed with donkeys and produce mules. There are lots and lots of examples of, of interspecies uh, breeding. Um, the process by which new species are created is a, is a slow and gradual one. It plays out over a long period of time. And we can see today, we can observe every step of that process happening before our eyes. If I had more time, I have slides and data and backup, but you can just go read about this. It's, it's, on, it's on Wikipedia. Um, boy, I wish we had time to talk about the moon and tides because that's something I actually know something about. <laughs> maybe, we should, maybe we need to reconvene with a narrower focus next time. <laughs> I'm, I'm for it. Come to, come to Lennox. We'll, uh, we'll have a, a discussion down here. I'll give you a tour. You mentioned, I think you shot yourself in the foot, you said we see dogs produce non-dogs because dogs, wolves, and coyotes can interbreed. They're still the same kind of animal. Then you said horses and donkeys interbreed and make a mule. Can a horse and a coyote interbreed? No, not anymore. 
But if you're going to go down that route, then the observation that kinds only produce uh, after their own kind, all you've done there is make the observation is that there are groups of animals that can't interbreed. And then you, happen, yeah. then you happen to attach the label kind today, they can't interbreed, and you attach the label kind to that. But that's not, that, that's, that's only, it only it now becomes a vacuous observation that kinds can only produce after their own kind because that's how you've defined the word. Well, and it, is, said, it is true that there yeah. are groups of animals that cannot interbreed today. The question is just how did this come about? So if we see groups of animals, let's say coyote, wolf, dog, and uh, maybe even fox, I don't know, are in the same kind. Therefore, that proves they came from a, an amoeba in your mind? Well, you're skipping over a lot of steps there. <laughs> Long time. When, billions, you, billions when you put it that way, yeah, it sounds really stupid. But it, it sounds really stupid, stupid because you've skipped yeah. over all the details that get you from A to B. How and do I don't have a, time to, to fill those in for you. How do you get from an amoeba to a dog? Where's the gene code in the amoeba to tell the dog how to make a leg or a tongue or an eyeball? That, Amoebas don't have any of that. Like I said, that's a really long story. But, but evolutionary biologists have filled in that story to an amazing degree. And if you give me half an hour and a day to prepare, I'll, I'm happy to tell you that story. Or you can just go look it up. Just look up phylo, phylogenetic tree and you'll, you'll see the result. And, and the way that these phylogenetic trees are produced is by DNA sequencing and by matching up the ones that are, are closest to each other. It's all done algorithmically. There's there's no politics involved. There's no desires, and and there's there's certainly no uh, no wanting to avoid God for the for the for the sake of satisfying lusts. So, because they can make a phylogenetic tree and draw a bunch of lines on paper, therefore that is is the line that they drew the evidence or the result no, of the evidence. No, like that's to see not that what I said. That's not the evidence. The evidence. Okay, the evidence is the. Yeah, the, the fact that you can draw this is evidence for evolution. It, it means that it, there is at least a plausible path for uh, all of the diversity of life to have arisen from a single common ancestor. It's not proof, but it is evidence. And then on top of that, you've got the fossils and you've got the geologic column and you've got cosmology and you've got this and you've got that. It really is just an overwhelming stack of evidence any one item of which we could talk about for an hour. I would agree with that. If you want to cover the geologic column pretty well, if you think the geologic column exists, we can sure have a long debate about that. Uh, fossils have, don't form today at all, anywhere. That, There's lots of fossils in the ground. I think that best explained fossils, by a flood. That's because fossils take a long time to form. They take, I don't know how long, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, billions of years. I'm not a geologist, so I just don't know. You think, do you think a bone in the dirt would stay there for tens of thousands of years before it disintegrated? A fossil is not a bone. I don't think you understand uh, fossils. I don't think you understand fossilization has to be a rapid process. I've got a fossilized pickle in our museum. We've got a fossilized teddy bear. Fossilization <laughs> has to be rapid, or else it's going to the thing's going to decay. Okay. Animals I'm... die all the time. They don't fossilize. None of them. 
I am well got, outside my I just area. To real quick, just because we, we do got to make sure that we have enough time at least to read our super chat. It's been a really big audience tonight, so you guys brought the numbers. If you each want to take a couple minutes um, of uninterrupted time as the um, in the form of like a closing statement to address anything you feel you might not have had enough time to do so, uh, go ahead and then we can jump right into the questions. Ron, since you started, uh, why don't you take a couple minutes and kind of wrap it up uninterrupted time. We'll do the same for Kent. Let me just start by finishing up my point about fossils. This is well outside my area of, of expertise, but I'm going to make a prediction. My prediction is that if you go on Wikipedia, you will find an article on fossils that will explain exactly how they form and how long it takes and why fossils are the way they are. And one of the reasons that I'm, and I'm confident enough to make this in making this prediction that without even looking, I'm willing to give you a hundred, put my money on the table and give you a hundred to one odds that I'm right about this. And the reason I can make this prediction is because everything I believe about the world, including the content of Wikipedia and the behavior of my fellow scientists, is part of an overall worldview that has had tremendous success historically in helping mankind to navigate reality. And that worldview is called the scientific method. And the scientific method consists of exactly the process that we've been going through here tonight, looking at some data, positing some hypotheses, some explanations that could account for that, and then examining them to see which ones are plausible and which ones are not, and then going on to see what additional data or can be gathered or additional experiments can be done in order to weed the possibilities down until you're finally left with one. Mankind has been at this for about 400 years now, and a lot of the possibilities have been weeded, have been pretty effectively weeded out at this point. In order to really come up with something new, that's really, really hard nowadays. And that's why the people who manage to do it become famous and celebrated, because it ain't easy. Um, then go ahead, uh, Kent, if you wanted to make a, a few points in response to that, then we can jump into the closings. I'm not trying to come up with something new. I'm trying to teach something really old, been known for a long time. God made the world in six days, and it's the only way it works. There are too many symbiotic relationships that cannot work evolving separately. And as far as an overall worldview that helps mankind, that's the creation worldview. The founders of this country said, we hold these truths to be self-evident. All men are created equal. They're endowed by their creator with certain rights. It was the idea that there's a creator that gives rights that would limit government that started this whole wonderful country. Many other systems of government do not believe that. That's where you get dictatorships, totalitarianism. I'm sorry, I have to call foul here. This, this, foul. this is way off topic. We're you're getting onto politics, and the topic here is the evidence for evolution. You're the one that said the worldview of evolution helps mankind. Worldview of the scientific it's hindering, process. It's hindering science. I think it's a useless theory. It's hindering science. It's hindering mankind. If man is just an evolved animal, how do we tell right from wrong? Ron, is it wrong for somebody to murder their neighbor and cut them up and eat them? If it's wrong, why do you think it's wrong under evolution? Boy, I would love to get into the, into morali the morality of evolution with you, but sure. that is also way off topic. <laughs> well, I think the fruit of evolution is people have no moral standard to go by. Where, how do you tell right from wrong? Is abortion right or wrong? Okay. Is sex with your dog right or wrong? Is, is anything are, are one wrong? One of the moderators going to put a stop to this, or, or oh, okay. shall I take shall this off? 
Well, no, I, I think what we'll do now is because it's been a really engaging discussion we have. It's been so fun and it flew by that we, we gave probably about another 10 minutes onto the discussion. This would right now be a good time just to, Ron, since you started, take a couple minutes um, or whatever you feel is necessary just to uh, give a concluding statement. We'll do the same for um, for Kent. And then we've got some super chats to read and we'll call it a night. So if you right. want to go ahead there, Ron. I thought that was my concluding statement. <laughs> yeah, me too. Go ahead and super chat. Yeah. Go right into the super chats. No yeah, problem. let's do it. Okay, well, uh, thanks again for an engaging discussion and a really good debate. So uh, I'm going to pass it over to Brother John Maddox, who gathered the super chats and questions. Um, John, go ahead. All right. So first question we've got is for Kent, and it's from David Neff. Uh, what criteria would you accept for one kind changing into another, quote-unquote, kind? Well, again, the burden of proof is not on me because I'm not asking everybody to teach this, but I think if the Bible says they will bring forth after their kind. So the ability to reproduce seems to be heavily tied into whether it's the same kind. I would predict you will never be able to get an apple tree to reproduce with a coyote. I think they're different kind. Uh, now, can the coyote and the dog reproduce? Maybe so. Charles Darwin kind of changed the field a little bit by titling his book, The Origin of Species. Well, what exactly is a species? Nobody's ever gotten a rock solid, you know, unchangeable definition of species either. So uh, it goes back to the definition of the word evolution. What exactly do they mean? And I covered this in my seminar, the six different meanings of the word. What we've ever seen is variations within the same kind. What every four-year-old would say, that's the same kind of animal. I don't know that the burden of proof is on me to uh, um, um, define it in every instance because some of them are pretty tough to classify. That's the glory of science. But what we have observed is dogs produce dogs. Dogs, coyotes, and wolves maybe had a common ancestor, but they both have hair on the outside. They both have a nose on the front and a tail on the back. I think there's more similarities than differences. I think dogs and apples have a lot of differences. So I would predict they're a different kind. Awesome. Thank you. All right. This is. Can, can I for, speak to that? Uh, sure. Go ahead. So this idea that the straw man of uh, coyotes not being able to interbreed with apples, that is, of course, true. But it's based on a fundamental misunderstanding of how speciation works. Kinds do not change into other kinds. Kinds diversify. And eventually they get to the point where they diversify enough that some of their members can't interbreed with each other. And that usually happens because of physical isolation in different kinds of environments, uh, but not always. There are other ways that speciation can happen. And so it's not that one kind changes into another, it's that one kind splits and becomes two kinds. And that kind of splitting is what gives rise to the tree of life. And it's because that's the process by which kinds arise that we know that it started with a single common ancestor. Well now, Ron, that if you look at your phylogenetic tree, it does go back to a single cell organism. Let's no. call it a bacteria or an amoeba. No. no, it doesn't. All the family trees go back to a single cell organism. No. I've got hundreds of <laughs> they, they, they go back to an original replicator, which usually doesn't appear on the tree because we have no idea what it was like. But by the time you get to a single cell, a lot of evolution has already happened. <laughs> single cells are very complicated. Oh, yeah. Okay, so did the single cell, you're saying today, uh, kinds don't change to a different kind, but if it went from a single cell to a coyote, somewhere along the line, it changed to a different kind. No, it split and became two kinds. <laughs> so it did so change way, to a different kind. So it, it, the way it happened... 
is single cell organisms started to form colonies which form multicellular creatures, animals which which uh, okay, form so the single cell creature became multicell. It's now a different kind. You're saying they right, don't turn you, to a different kind, and yet you're saying they do turn to a different kind. Which is it so, you believe? Okay, like I said, the story is complicated, and yeah. it's hard to tell an the accurate story. version of it here off the cuff. But one of the very significant things that happened in order to produce what we think now of now as kinds is sexual reproduction. And that is a long story in and of itself. And so you're kind of flipping back and forth between stories about single-celled organisms and stories about wolves and apples. But wolves and apples reproduce sexually and bacteria reproduce asexually. And how you get, and the story of how you get from between those two things is very long and involved. And okay, so if I show you, all right, guys, let's go. Let's go on to the next question, guys. You guys okay. have quite a bit of time on that one. The I think you guys need to have a secondary debate on this uh, on this subject. Yeah. All right, so we got a super chat from Nephilim Free. This is for you, Ron. DNA is information operating linguistically and algorithmically. Why do you believe material process can create these? Uh, well, first of all, I dispute the. Assumption, the assertion in the question that DNA operates linguistically. I'm not even sure what that means. Um, well, no, knowing Neff, he's probably referring to the multiple papers uh, from Origin of Life Research Centers on this exact topic. Okay, you'll have to point me to those papers because I'm not familiar with with information operating linguistically. It, it, that, that I don't even know how to parse that in a way that makes sense. Um, it is true that uh, DNA operates in a way that could be considered algorithmic. Um, and again, there is a, a long story to be told because our understanding of how that could come about is, is now quite detailed. Um, but I just don't have time to go into it. It has to do with the universality of Turing machines and the fact that the fundamental laws of physics can be described mathematically um, and all kinds of experiments that have been done computationally in order to show that very complex behaviors can emerge from, from very simple rules and, and all kinds of things like that. Um, like I said, give me an hour. I'd be happy to give you a talk about it, but I, I can't do it uh, in, in 30 seconds. <laughs> all right, no problem. All right, uh, another great super chat from Jeff Lynn. Thanks so much, Jeff. Uh, blessings to my brothers in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Thanks so much, Jeff. Really appreciate that, man. Uh, all right. So next one we've got from Luca. This is for you, Kent. Uh, it's unity of measure of entropy. I'm guessing he's asking what you uh, determine as a unit of measure for entropy. Was that for me? I don't know if anybody's ever come up with a unit of measure for entropy. All we've ever seen is things are falling apart. Entropy, uh, everything tends toward disorder. Uh, how fast it happens varies greatly. Uh, some people fall apart rapidly early in life, and some people fall apart later in life. Uh, I don't think there is such a thing as a unit of measure of entropy. I think it is universally observed. Uh, I'd like to see anybody show me an example of uh, the opposite of entropy. You have to have a lot of input to the human body just to keep it going. you got to keep putting air into it and water and food. And there's a lot of input to keep just to keep it alive. Uh, so I don't know. I've never see 381. I've never seen an, uh, a measure of unit for the uh, unit of measure for entropy. Interesting. 
Yeah, I, I agree. I don't, and there might be one in physics, but uh, I, I don't know offhand what it is. Like I said, I'm not a physicist, um, but this is kind of a tired old trope because it's simply not true that entropy always increases unconditionally. That's only true for closed systems and earth is not a closed system. It has energy coming in from the sun. So entropy does not, does not increase here. All right, going on. Let's go on I, next I just one, wanted guys. to jump in real quick. I just want to make the point that whoever's question it is, I believe it's only fair that they would get the last word. So, for example, on that one, uh, Dr. Hoven, that was your question. If you'd like to have the final word on it, then then we'll move on to the next question. Well, I think it's fallacious to think that adding energy is going to overcome entropy. Uh, we added a lot of energy to Hiroshima one time. Didn't organize anything over there, uh, or Nagasaki. So, adding energy doesn't doesn't in, doesn't decrease entropy. Uh, adding energy to your body by taking in food, water, et cetera, only keeps it going based on the code that's already there. It doesn't increase anything. You cannot add energy to your body and therefore grow feathers or a wing or a fly. Uh, it, it just keeps it, it keeps it going with a, a pre-existing code. All right, let's move on to the next one, guys. So we've got a, this is from Dapper Dino. This is for you, Kent. Uh, let's say you found a skeleton in the ground. How would you tell if it's a dinosaur? And he's asking, how would you personally determine this? Well, the word dinosaur means terrible lizard. It was coined in the 1800s, dinosaur, terrible lizard. I think there are certain characteristics of reptile skeletons. Some are kind of difficult to tell. But generally, reptiles, uh, lizards, snakes, turtles, etc., tortoises, never stop growing. Uh, you look at the end of the bone to see do they have the uh, cells that are able to keep growing or to eventually stop growing so what exactly uh how would you tell from a bone maybe not maybe may not be enough data to tell from a single bone whether it belong what species it belongs to and oftentimes things do get mischaracterized or misclassified so i guess i'd have to leave that to people who are more uh interested in classifying bones to see which exactly species it is but by definition, the word dinosaur has to be in the lizard category. Dino, that's what it means, terrible reptile. Uh, Ron, do you have anything you want to say? Or should you better move on to the next question. Only, only to point out that dinosaurs aren't actually reptiles. But <laughs> No, I, I don't want to really want to touch that one. <laughs> All right. Uh, this is for you, Ron. It's a super chat from George Bond. Thanks so much, George. Uh, he's asking, please explain the caterpillar to butterfly via evolutionary process. How did the, he's asking, how did the caterpillar, caterpillar become a butterfly via traditional oh, evolutionary process? I, you know, that came up in my debate with, uh, with, with John Maddox. Um, and after that debate, I, I went and looked it up and there's an article about it in Wikipedia. And I read all about it and then promptly forgot the details. So I, I don't know what the answer is, but I do know that the answer is in Wikipedia. So just go look it up. <laughs> All right. Um, Ken, do you have anything you want to say about that or move on? To the well, next I one? think there are, there are millions, probably billions of examples like that, that I think are the fact that somebody can write an article on Wikipedia doesn't mean anything. Uh, but caterpillar to a butterfly is pretty phenomenal change. Uh, and how did it evolve the ability to make that change? Why, was, why didn't it stay a caterpillar? It's perfectly happy as a caterpillar. Why go through this complete metamorphosis? Uh, it, 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 all, all, they'll, all they'll say is, given enough time, it can happen. That, that's why it's a religion. They have to believe it. It's not science. 
Did I get the last right. word since it was my question? I'm going to agree with Kent. Kent. Kent is absolutely right that you should not trust everything you read in Wikipedia. And that's why every article in Wikipedia has helpful references that you can go see what the original sources of the information was. So you can actually go read the original scientific papers that are the basis of the information that's presented in Wikipedia. And you can judge for yourself. And if you find a mistake, you can publish your own paper correcting the mistake and become a famous scientist and contribute to the field. That's how this process works. All right. We got a, another super chat from Jeff Lynn, and he says, it was Karl Marx who wrote to Charles Darwin to thank him for his evil delusion, not Christians. I think y'all were going back and forth on that. Uh, or maybe that was from, from the side chat earlier. Anybody know what he's talking about That's, there? That sounds like politics, and I'm happy to talk about the politics of evolution, but not tonight. I, I, think, I, think, there was a, I think there was a discussion about this going on in side chat that might have been directed at uh, <laughs> whoever they were interacting with. All right, uh, we got a, another super chat from Coco Puffer. Actually, we got two from him. Uh, this, is, this one's for you, Kent. Um, it takes DNA to make proteins and proteins to make DNA. Please explain to Ron he has a major chicken and egg problem. It takes a designer. Hmm. Well, it, it is obvious. You do have a chicken and egg problem. People ask me, which came first, chicken or the egg? Well, the chicken. Had to. God made all the animals in two in six days, and there's no, I know, I, there's no better explanation. Uh, so, yeah, the protein makes the DNA. The DNA makes the protein. I, I, see, I see no way out of that chicken and egg problem for the evolutionist other than SpongeBob imagination. Give it enough time. Doesn't happen. But Ron, I would like to hear your answer on that one. Yes, yeah, so this is a legitimate point. Um, this is something the science does not yet have an answer, a, a good answer to. Uh, it's the problem of abiogenesis, which is separate from the problem of, of the question of evolution. Evolu the, the evidence for evolution uh, is overwhelming. Uh, the evidence for abiogenesis is thinner. We're still trying to, to work that out. Um, and uh, I have a lot of confidence that science will eventually work it out. Um, there are a lot, if you look at, science has a really good track record of solving problems that were once considered unsolvable. So um, my optimism is based on the history and that, and that track record. But the jury is still out. And it may well be that uh, eventually we will discover some evidence that refutes all of these hypotheses. I'll, like I said in the opening, I'll give you long odds against, but I won't bet my entire life savings on it. Well, Ron, right. I think you Ron just demonstrated uh, he's got great faith, which is why you ought to keep it out of science class. It's a faith. All right. We got another uh, question, another super chat from Coco Puffer. Thanks so much for your super chat. Uh, Kent, please explain to Ron a coyote is a kind of dog. Thanks. <laughs> I don't need to explain it. I think he knows that. Uh, it's the same. Uh, uh, rather self-explanatory. Yeah. All right. Uh, got another well, chat. I just wanted to jump in real quick, just because we are going way over time. I want to thank both debaters for that. If you wanted to just maybe just do a really speed round on the super chats, Brother John, and I know it's getting late for uh, both uh, Dr. Hoven and Dr. Garrett. So if you could do just a speed round, and then we'll call it a night. All right. Hang on just one second. All right, uh, super chat from Eric 
Virenthaler. Hope I didn't uh, destroy his name. Uh, this one's for you, Kent. If humans and dinosaurs coexisted 6,000 years ago, then why haven't we ever found fossilized dinosaur saddles on any dinosaurs? <laughs> wow, I don't think we've ever found fossilized uh, saddles on anything. Uh, I don't think they ever found a fossilized saddle on a horse. But I think I can demonstrate people have put saddles on horses. I don't know. Reptiles are pretty hard to tame in general. I don't think anybody tries to tame their crocodile to do anything other than not bite them. So I think the idea that you'd have to put, find a saddle on it to prove anything. I think we find thousands of legends of humans uh, coexisting with creatures that can they call them dragons or other names. And I got a whole two hour video on that. Go to drdino.com and watch my video on dinosaurs in the Bible. Uh, so I think they've always lived with man. They probably had different names for them since the word dinosaur wasn't made up till 1800s. So they called them dragons or some other name. There could be some still alive. There have been a lot of sightings like Loch Ness Monster type creatures. And I cover that for an hour on my video number uh, three about dinosaurs. So to find a saddle on one wouldn't prove anything uh, or wouldn't be necessary, I don't think. Uh, nobody's ever found human and chicken bones fossilized together. Therefore, that proves humans did not live with chickens, doesn't it? That's the kind of logic. All right. Uh, we've got another super chat from Nathan Artwork. Kent, what is your definition of religion? Well, religion is something you believe in. You may be right, but you can't prove it scientifically. Science deals with what we can observe, study, test. I would put religion into the category of something I can't prove, like uh, um, gravity. I think we can demonstrate quite a few things about gravity, but that doesn't tell me exactly what it is. Nobody knows what it is. Nobody knows what uh, love, joy, peace, mercy, hatred, envy, rationality. I mean, give me a jar of any of those and paint them red. So those are things that kind of come outside the realm of science uh, into other philosophical uh, uh, endeavors. So I would say I believe God created the world. I believe that's the only logical explanation. I believe somebody made this pen. Whether I can ever see that person or not, I don't know. Probably never going to meet him. But I think it's logical to conclude somebody made this. I think it's logical to conclude there had to be a creator for the first dog, because all we've ever seen are dogs produce the dogs. So I, I believe that there was an original created dog. But I'm not asking everybody to pay for that to be taught in the school system. Ron is asking, forcing everybody to pay for his religion to be taught. He believes dogs and mosquitoes have a common ancestor, which was a protista. I'm sorry, it wasn't a bacteria, a protista. Go ahead. Do you want to respond to that, Ron, or move on to the next question? Let's move on. <laughs> okay. All right. Awesome super chat from Jungle Jargon. Thanks so much, man. Uh, this one is for you, Ron. What is the volume of the sediment layers around the world? I'm not a geologist. I have no idea. All right. Um, okay. So and this is another one for you, Ron. Uh, from Ryan Prinslow. Um, I'd really love an answer, or at least a semblance of one. What evolved first, the kidneys, the brain, heart, liver, or blood? Anyone um, without the other cannot exist. I'm not a biologist. I have no idea, but I am very confident that if you asked a biologist, they would know. All right. Let's see. We're almost done. Like oh, you want to respond to that, Kent? Oh, yeah. I would be, I'm very confident that if you ask a biologist, they would make up a story that if you add billions of years. But what we've ever seen is no, these things, it's a complex system. What good is your eyeball without the optic nerve or the visual cortex? 
What if you had an eyeball and a visual cortex and a uh, optic nerve and you could see the danger coming, but you didn't have any muscles and no nervous system to tell, move. A bunch of things have to work together all simultaneously. It's not possible. It's not logical to think they happen by chance. So right. I'm confident they would make up a story and it would involve billions of years. I would bet money on that. It would involve a long time. It, yes, that's certainly true. <laughs> the, <laughs> these stories all do involve long periods of time. <laughs> All well, right. You're, you're absolutely right about that. All right, guys, we got a couple <laughs> questions left to wrap up as we all get re, uh, get re wrapped up here. Um, this one is for you, Kent, uh, from TD Lane. Do you understand the standard geologic explanation for polystrate fossils, properly known as upright fossils, is that they were buried rapidly? Uh, yes, I would agree they were buried rapidly. We see at Mount St. Helens. 20,000 some trees as the estimate are now standing upright at the bottom of Spirit Lake. They didn't grow there, none of them. They got blown out by the volcano. They've been floating around for 30 years and they're now floating up, many floating upright, many have sunk to the bottom. They're gonna fossilize standing up and they're gonna be petrified running through multiple layers. I think the only explanation, logical explanation of polystrata fossils is the layers are not different ages, not by much, few 20 years maybe. So the worldwide flood of Noah is the best explanation for the polystrate fossils. Um, and a petrified tree, a dead tree's only gonna stand there four or five years till it falls over. We got dead trees on our property here. Come on down, they're not gonna stand there for millions of years. So I think the, the, the geologist, geologist might come up with a story. They're good at coming up with a story about how it might've happened, but that doesn't mean it's part of science. What we observe is the layers around these petrified standing trees are mul multiple sometimes 20, 30 feet of trees standing there, standing up, running through 20 layers. So it's not logical to say the layers are millions of years different in age, that's for sure. The tree didn't grow through the rock, I'd be willing to bet money on that. All right, and uh, let's see, from Science is Observable, uh, question for you, Ron, what is the difference between adaptation and evolution? Hmm. I'm not sure I know the answer to that. I, 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 I would, I have, I guess I have to say, I don't know. All right. Uh, we just got a super chat in real quick. Uh, I think Kat wants her. Okay. Do you want to respond? Well, I think adaptation certainly happens. You can adapt. Animals can adapt to cold climate and like Alaska and the dogs, the wolves up there have thicker fur. Animals can adapt to hot climate like, you know, desert and have real thin fur, but they could never adapt to 500 below zero. They can never adapt to 2000 degrees above zero. Uh, there are limits to the adaptation. But all we've ever seen is adaptation. We don't ever see anything uh, developing a new kind, a new, new, uh, new, a new trait. Uh, there, there are limits to the adaptation. And then since that was your question, Ron, did you want to have the last word there? Uh, I'm sorry, I got too hung up listening to Kent's answer. I forgot the question. Could you please repeat it? Uh, okay. Uh, what is the difference between adaptation oh, still, oh, and evolution? Oh, we're still on that. Okay. Um, yeah. Uh, no. <laughs> I okay. still don't know the answer. We got a quick, we got a quick funny thing, one. We got I a quick like funny to say one. one thing, though, and there's something else that Kent and I actually do agree on. So Kent is, is calling these things that, that these explanations that scientists come up with stories. 
and he's right about that. They are stories. But the thing that makes them scientific is that they are stories that are consistent with all of the observed data and have withstood scrutiny and challenge and questioning um, and, and, and have passed all these tests. That's what makes them special stories that are worthy of, of respecting consideration and distinguishes them from other kinds of stories that humans tell. Right on. All right. We got a funny uh, last minute super chat from Josiah Hansen. Kent, I tweeted a photo I took of a real life dragon flying over my car yesterday, but you've blocked me. Guess you're out of luck. I was shocked. <laughs> well, I, I don't block people at all uh, on my. I don't have, like tech guy might have done that, or somebody else might have done that who monitors the channel. We'd block people that curse and swear, or that try to monopolize our channel by making 400 comments. Go get your own channel, make any comments you want. But uh, there are maybe, maybe brother. You said you saw what appeared to be a pterodactyl fly over your car. I mean, uh, had the horn in the back, had the thing on the back of the head. I mean, if a life, if a pterodactyl was captured and put in the Brooklyn Zoo. What would you evolutionists say? I can tell you right now, you would say, wow, look at this one survive for 70 million years. It'll never enter your brain to question the whole theory. It'll never come across your mind. Okay, well, I'm going to jump in here and, oh. If can I respond? Talking, yeah, of that, course. That sort of thing actually does happen. On occasion, they do discover uh, species that they thought were extinct that, uh, that, that turned out not to be. Uh, the one example that I can think of just offhand is the chambered nautilus, but there are probably others. Okay, well, I want to thank the... Uh, oh, of course. Yeah, go ahead. Rob, the, chambered, the chambered nautilus is an index fossil. If they find a fossilized chambered nautilus, it's given an age, that rock layer is given an age of millions of years old. But now that they found them alive, what are you going to do? I don't know. I'd, I would have to look that up. But again, I'm very confident yeah. that there's an answer out there. Oh, yeah, I'm sure you are. Okay, well, I'm going to jump in here. I want to thank the debaters for giving us all this extra time. The chat has had a great time. We've all had a great time. It's been a really good debate. Uh, definitely one to remember. So I want to thank you both again for um, your time tonight. And also thanks to the audience for the great super chats and questions. Uh, any last words from uh, either uh, Dr. Garrett or Dr. Hoven before we shut it down? You started. Ron, go ahead. Um, no, thanks. Uh, thanks, Kent, for making the time. I appreciate it. It's, it's been interesting, uh, challenging. Um, I, I hope we meet again. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you also. I'll be glad to do it again anytime. And come on down. I'll, I'll introduce you to Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior, and then we can get baptized in our lake. Come on down. Awesome. Well, thanks to the both of you. Uh, any hey, last before we uh, yeah, Before ahead. we wrap up, folks, uh, if you head on over to my channel, we're going to do an open mic uh, after show. Uh, there'll be a link over in the live chat. Uh, head on over. We're kicking off in about uh, about five minutes after we wrap up here, so we'll be going live. And thanks so much to Ron and Kent. It was really uh, fun. I really enjoyed uh, hey, listening to y'all, and hope we uh, have it happen again soon. All right. Thank you. Thank you.